This time last week, Israel was attempting to comprehend an unimaginable horror. More than 1,300 people killed and thousands more injured in an assault by Hamas, the Palestinian militant organisation which controls the Gaza Strip. Even for a country which has spent much of its 75 years of existence at war, it was the single worst day in Israel's history. One week later, some sense of Israel's response is beginning to coalesce. As of this broadcast, nearly 2,000 people have been killed in Gaza by Israeli artillery and airstrikes. They will not be the last. Gaza is already under total siege, with water, power, medicine and food all cut off, and the Israel Defence Forces are massing for a ground assault on Gaza, certain to be of further reach and greater severity than previous such incursions in 2014 and 2009. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has promised to destroy Hamas. Every member of the organisation, he has said, is a dead man. The Israel-Palestine conflict possesses a unique ability to inflame tensions elsewhere at the best of times. At this worst of times, the repercussions have already been considerable. This special live edition of the Foreign Desk reflects on a dreadful week and considers what lies ahead. Can Israel really eliminate Hamas? And if so, at what cost? Does Benjamin Netanyahu, who has presided over such a calamitous security failure, still have the authority to lead his country? And what now for Palestine? This is The Foreign Desk. We begin tonight with the Middle East in flames. Israel has formally declared war after that unprecedented multi-pronged terror attack from Hamas. Israel is at war. Hamas will understand that by attacking us, they've made a mistake of historic proportions. Israel has the right to defend itself and its people. Full stop. I've just spoken with Prime Minister Netanyahu to assure him of the UK's steadfast support as Israel defends itself against these appalling attacks. Let me be very clear. Hamas terrorists aren't a resistance. They're not freedom fighters. They are terrorists. I'm deeply distressed by today's announcement that Israel will initiate a complete siege of the Gaza Strip, nothing allowed in, no electricity, food or fuel. You cannot stand for peace if you do not stand up to occupation. Do it because it is the right thing to do and because it will save lives. And welcome to this special live edition of The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, with the latest from Tel Aviv by Alison Kaplan-Sommer, a journalist for Haaretz. Um, Alison, you've been speaking to us a lot throughout this uh, absolutely hideous week uh, for Israel, but I, I want to start by asking you to think back to last Saturday and your first understanding of what was taking place. Well, like all Israelis, it wasn't an utterly unfamiliar situation to be awakened by sirens that missiles were perhaps incoming into uh, our area. I live in the center of the country, in the Tel Aviv area, and yet I have experienced this, nothing like the uh, residents of the south. But I woke up, heard the missile siren, went into the shelter and waited and assumed that, again, there was going to be some kind of an exchange of fire between uh, the Hamas uh, forces. Forces, the missiles they were sending into Israel, and then there would be bombing by Israel. You know, this was sort of a script that we were familiar with. And um, shock 
worked. Um, and, and it just felt surreal to see the first pictures on television of Mad Max style people coming through the uh, fence between Gaza and Israel on pickup trucks, you know, waving uh, Kalashnikovs on motorcycles going into Israeli cities and communities. Uh, all of the first video came in by, uh, by people's cell phones and then it was broadcast on television and just murderously going into homes and killing, slaughtering people. It felt again like something out of a movie. It, it didn't feel real. It didn't feel like anything we had pictured or imagined could happen because we felt like we had all of these military layers of protection between Gaza and the places where people lived in southern Israel. So um, very quickly, as soon as those pictures registered, we understood that we were in a situation unlike anything that we've ever seen in uh, in any war uh, in Israel. And, and how does an organization like Haaretz respond to that? As you say, a lot of this is not necessarily new to Israelis, and therefore it's not necessarily new uh, to Israeli media organizations. That that buildup you described, the, the incoming rocket fire, the rush to shelters, th- this has become part of life in Israel. But once it was understood by you and your colleagues that this was something of an altogether uh, more horrendous order, how do you respond to that? How does the newsroom mobilize? Well, I mean, you know, echoing 50 years ago, the Yom Kippur War, this all happened. It broke out not only on Saturday, Shabbat, which is Israel's complete day off, but it was a holiday, the holiday of Sukkot. So our media organization, like every media organization, was on complete skeleton staff, skeleton crew, sort of the youngest, most inexperienced people manning the desk. So it was just a scramble um, to get everyone in position to report, you know, one of the biggest news stories of our lifetime. So, um, you know, everyone had to drop what they were doing, religiously observant people who don't use electronics or their phones on that holiday, you know, started breaking the rules and uh, and going on. My uh, son joked that uh, when he saw a very religious reporter on the television news go on TV on Sukkot on that uh, on that Sabbath morning, he knew that this was a very uh, very serious story. So yeah, we mobilized to get uh, to get everyone in place and uh, and reporting as quickly as possible. And uh, many of us have just been reporting for the past nine months on these protests that have been going on, these anti Netanyahu anti government protests that have been going on over the weekend. So we sort of the the blogs and the WhatsApp groups that we've been using to cover the protest movement all of a sudden pivoted to uh, to covering war. Well, let's talk a bit about some of the most recent developments. Uh, we have had this order from Israel to everybody in northern Gaza, which is just over a million people uh, to begin evacuating to the south. Uh, what does that tell us about Israel's imminent ambitions? Uh, Israel's not making a secret of it. They are doing this and they are leaving that uh, delay to try to get as many civilians out of there as possible. And also very recently, there's been an announcement that the Rafah border crossing into Egypt will be open uh, to American citizens um, uh, who want to get out of Gaza altogether and and go to Egypt. So this is all a very clear signal uh, message from Israel that, you know, this area um, uh, of uh, northern Gaza, that it plans to um, conduct a mission um, and, and conduct missions that will completely eliminate 
Hamas capabilities and targets um, without attempting to discriminate, as it does in the past, between targets with uh, heavy civilian populations and uh, and those that uh, that don't. It's going to conduct again a, a wider and uh, and more widespread operation. Until now, you, we have had high casualty counts. Um, the official number coming out of Gaza is 2,000, um, but. You know, um, and we don't know how many of that are actually um, uh, terrorist militants uh, running Hamas and how many of those are civilians. But civilians have been um, uh, trying to uh, Israel has been trying to avoid as many civilian uh, casualties as possible and uh, telling them to get out of the way is a signal that uh, that they are not going to discriminate in their targets and they're not going to take into consideration any place that civilians might be or not be and telling warning civilians to please get out of the way because it wants civilian casualties to be uh, to be as low as possible. Uh, we will be talking a bit more shortly about the the predicament of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at this point. He has attempted to shore himself up somewhat by assembling this government of national unity. Uh, the most notable figure included in which is is Benny Gantz, former IDF chief of staff, uh, and and also obviously one of Netanyahu's principal rivals. Is it clear what the dynamics of this national unity government will be? Whether Gantz will have a specific role? Well, I think in order to put public faith in what the government is doing, uh, with the very very low level of confidence in Netanyahu right now, polls show that you know the the country needs to be united around its leader at this crisis time. But that doesn't mean that they've uh, they've come to have any affection or trust or faith in Benjamin Netanyahu. There's still, you know, he has his hardcore base, but it's a, but it's a minority of the country. In a time like this, you need to have confidence in the people who are sitting around the table making these hard decisions of what to attack, where to attack. And uh, Benny Gantz's National Unity Party um, happens to have um, many generals at the top, people with military experience. Benny Gantz himself is a former commander-in-chief. Gadi Eisenkot, who's a senior uh, figure in his party, is also a former commander-in-chief. So the purpose of the national unity government, their main role, really, their you know the reason that they're going in, despite their uh, dislike and distrust of Netanyahu, is to give the country some sort of faith that uh, the people um, around the table are people that they can trust and uh, and understand, have some sort of military experience and um, an understanding of what's going on, because Netanyahu's senior uh, inner circle does not have that kind of senior military experience and uh, and therefore there is a lot of skepticism and questioning whether his government is um, qualified by itself before he, they went into national unity with Gantz to uh, to prosecute this war uh, in the way it needs to be prosecuted. And, and just finally, Alison, I, I want to bring it back to your newspaper. You, you now at least have a better understanding than you did a week ago of the nature of this story and what covering it might might mean. Um, what kind of plans does Haaretz have for adapting to whatever lies ahead? Well, we're very well adapted. Um, we have, you know, we have a whole newsroom in the bomb shelter. This isn't, you know, this isn't a new situation of being under fire. The hardest part of it is honestly the personal um, uh, connection. There's nobody on our staff who doesn't have a father, brother, son, daughter. All of my colleagues have uh, have uh, kids who have been now um, brought into military reserves if they already weren't uh, doing their required army service. Um, uh, nobody hasn't uh, hasn't lost people or at least no people who lost people. I have 
friends who were killed um, in the, in the kibbutzim in the in the south. So you know, to keep your eye on the news and to try to approach this in a professional man- uh, manner when you're so personally affected is 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 very challenging. It's always challenging in Israel because it is such a small country and we are so personally affected, and uh, and not only to by the fact that we ourselves are going into bomb shelters, um, but uh, but when you've got uh, friends and family involved, you know, trying to keep a professional viewpoint and the and the whole picture um, uh, is always uh, is always very personally challenging. Alison, thank you as always for joining us. That was Alison Kaplan Sommer, reporter with Haaretz, speaking to us from Tel Aviv. You're listening to a special live edition of The Foreign Desk. This is a special live edition of The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. The key figure in determining Israel's response to last Saturday's massacres by Hamas is, of course, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. He is Israel's longest-serving leader and arguably its most divisive. He is beleaguered by criminal indictments and currently governs in cahoots with a coalition of cranky nationalists and eccentric theocrats. His national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, was, as a young man forbidden from undertaking Israel's compulsory military service due to his extremist views. Well, joining me in the studio is Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. Um, Yossi, it is, of course, first of all, as customary in Israel as it is anywhere else for people to rally behind their leader at a moment of crisis. But Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, was not a particularly popular prime minister before this started. We heard Alison mention those huge protests which have been going on against him for months. Uh, But what sense do you have now of the extent to which Benjamin Netanyahu does have his nation's support behind him? I think we need to split it into two. Yes, you're absolutely right. Netanyahu lost a lot of support when he formed the the kind of government that he formed that still is the most right-wing government in the country's history and the protest against the judiciary so-called reform. But we need to sweep between the people rally behind the drive to eliminate Hamas, to respond to what happened. But I just, before coming here, I looked at some public opinion polls. The Likud is crashed. Actually, it's the Benny Gantz party is going to come back, allegedly, if you believe public opinion polls, with 41 seats, and together with Lapid and other, probably the, what was the opposition until two days ago, can actually form a government with a majority of 71, 72, which is unprecedented for a long time. So his popularity is uh, all-time low. It is very clear that whatever is about to happen in Gaza will be large-scale, will likely be long-term, and will be absolutely merciless. Anyone who has spent any time in Israel well understands that Israeli public opinion uh, is very far from monolithic. But among Israelis who don't normally support Netanyahu, is there still nevertheless broad support for whatever is about to happen in Gaza? I think probably, and and I said sadly so, very few will question what happened next in Gaza. I think there is a collective trauma Mm. right now in Israel. No one expected it, what happened last Saturday. They're just reeling, trying to get a sense, how could it happen? People don't know how many are actually held hostages, how many people killed. They haven't identified all the bodies. Some probably still in the place where they were were killed. Many still missing. The anger is, is real. So this time, you know, they want to see Hamas hit very hard. 
I think it's divided between those who say, if civilians are killed, Palestinian civilians are killed, so be it. And the one sort of, yeah, it won't help, but it's a war. And I think there are very few that will go and say, listen, we have to look at the peace after. We can look what happens after the war. And I think to what Biden say, democracies fight, mm. supposed to fight differently and not commit a war crimes. But it's a hard sell right now. Well, indeed so. And one of the questions you ask there is, I think, a question that won't be asked necessarily in the next few weeks, but it is going to be asked. And that is the question, how could this have happened? And this, of course, did happen, obviously, on Netanyahu's watch as prime minister. And he has been mostly prime minister for quite a large chunk of Israel's recent history. He is, by all conventions of parliamentary government, ultimately responsible for the failure to see this attack coming. People have drawn the obvious comparison with the Yom Kippur October war of almost exactly 50 years ago, in which Israel was also surprised. Israel did win that war and it did rally behind its Prime Minister Golda Meir at the time, but she was gone within six months, having been largely blamed for the initial failure. Does that strike you as a a likely trajectory here? I'll be shocked if Netanyahu would survive beyond the war. Obviously, there should be investigation how this can happen. It's not only Netanyahu, but the buck stops with him. You know, he likes to take credit for everything that is successful to for the Abraham Accord. He needs to take responsibility. Other people, including the chief of staff, Herzi Levy, already said, we failed you. We were not prepared for what happened on Saturday. Let us win the war and we'll deal with it later because we need to learn the lessons. Not the words from Netanyahu of apology, not visit to hospitals, not visit to the place itself on the border with Gaza. When it comes to the support of Israel, it's very difficult to see him surviving this. In many ways, this is even worse than Yom Kippur. The fact that they trained a year and a half, apparently, without anyone noticing that, in a place that is blockaded and watched from everywhere, and they managed to train people to fly glides. So how do you do it? You can't do it in a bunker. If you train people to come from the sea, you need somehow to train them in the sea. Some argue that they actually train some hundred meters from the Israeli border, and no one saw it. But it's not only the technical side. Also with intelligence, depend what you look at. And if you don't believe that the other side actually has interest in a military confrontation, you actually ignore even when you, the information is in front of you. That's the similarity with Yom Kippur. They have in mind the perception or the misperception under what condition Hamas would attack. And they didn't realize that the conditions were already there. From operation point of view, moving units to the West Bank, because again, the assumption was that the security situation deteriorates in the West Bank, and it's all fine on this front. And that's what happened. The suggestion that there is no way back from here for Benjamin Netanyahu is one, of course, which has been made many, many, many times uh, over his career. Uh, As you were alluding to earlier, there is now a sort of national unity government coalescing involving Benny Gantz, the former IDF chief of staff, leader of the Blue and White Party, and though obviously he and Netanyahu cannot stand each other politically or personally, they have put those differences aside. Is Netanyahu who enough of an opportunist, though, that he might see here, well, an opportunity in that he has recently been governing in coalition with some extremely odd people. Does he perhaps see an, you know, a chance here to ditch them? Well, 
almost redefined the term opportunism. You know, it's, it's reaching to, to a level that we haven't seen before. But it comes to the end of the road in that, because no one believes him. Even the right-wing parties, they joined the coalition, not because they trusted him, because mm. you know, they, they had no choice. And they expected him to ditch them in the first opportunity, because that's the people he feel comfortable. Gantz, the former chief of staff. Gadi Eisenkot, former chief of staff. Now he can play the great strategist, but they don't trust him. If they respect him to an extent before, they don't respect him at all either. The corruption trial is still going. So under these circumstances, anyone probably can pull some trick out of their sleeve or their hat, but I really doubt it because it's not about just corruption and how much money he took from this or the other and compromise accountability and good governance. This is about 1,200 people killed. This is about babies and elderly killed in their beds and taken hostage. It's happened under his watch. Just finally, it, it does strike me that there's two failures here, really. One, there is the, the obvious proximate intelligence and security failure to have seen this uh, clearly uh, long-rehearsed and long-planned attack coming. The other is a broader failure in approach to the Palestinian question. The, the Israeli government, and I think a lot of watchers of the region, and I don't necessarily exclude myself from that, had kind of lapsed into feeling like this is... It's not ideal, it's not perfect, but it's it's manageable. Naftali Bennett, the former prime minister, had himself likened it to having shrapnel in the buttocks. You know, it's, it's, it's painful and unpleasant, but, you know, you can learn to live with it. That was clearly a miscalculation. Completely. I always argued that without peace agreement, there would be violence. Not that I expected something on this, mm. because I expect the Israeli army to be way, way better prepared for that. But the argument is... If you don't deal with the root causes of any conflict anywhere in the world, you'll end in conflict one way or another. The one word with that we really should erase, delete from the dictionary is status quo. Status quo doesn't exist. Status quo is an invention by those who feel in a better position. They don't want to change it without even remotely justify what Hamas said. It's horrific. No one can justify that. No condition should do that. But... It's create exactly the ground for this sort of radicalization, extremism to fester, that you have people that think that this is all right. The way that you prepare a war, you need to build a peace, and this was missing. Two million people blockaded for so long without permission to travel out, to go for medical treatment, and living in poverty, that actually, as we can see now, you can switch on and off the electricity, the gas, the water. It led for something. Now, 99.9% of and more of Palestinians not involved with Hamas. They don't involve with militancy. They're paying, as we speak, the price for that. But the reality, those are the conditions that enable the most extreme to prosper. Yossi Meckelberg, thank you for joining us. That was Yossi Meckelberg of Chatham House. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is a special live edition of The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. And joining me now from California is Gaith Alomari, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute and former Executive Director of the American Task Force on Palestine. Gaith also formerly held various other positions within the Palestinian Authority. Uh, Gaith, first of all, let's consider Israel's foe here, Hamas. 
it's a difficult question question to answer, but will there be anything left of Hamas out the other side of this? Will it still exist as an organization? As you said, it's a very difficult uh, question to answer, partly because we are yet to see a clearer definition of from Israel of what their objectives are. You know, we hear the statements from ministers about wiping out Hamas. This is all political. We are yet to see an articulation of a military objective. So that's kind of on the Israeli side. And, you know, by the way, the objective could be ending Hamas, but it could be simply decapitating Hamas, getting rid of the leadership, degrading its military capabilities, degrading its governance capabilities. And these are all very different things. But on the Hamas side, we have to keep in mind, first of all, that Hamas is a large organization, not only with a military wing, but also with, you know, supporters on the ground. And it's very hard to see how you can eliminate that. Add to that that Hamas, while we talk about Gaza, Hamas has presence elsewhere. It has strong presence in the West Bank. It has leaders living in Lebanon. It has leaders being hosted by Qatar, for example. So even if Hamas's ability to govern Gaza has been uh, reduced or even eliminated, Hamas as an organization will survive this. When we think back to where this week's fighting began with this horrendous assault on Israel by Hamas on Saturday morning, is it clear to you what Hamas thought they were trying to accomplish? Because they must know by now that Israel will always respond with monumental violence in response to any violence by Hamas. First of all, I would say that, you know, Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's the very definition of a terrorist organization. And sometimes you don't need a reason to conduct terror when you're a terrorist organization. Organization. I would say, though, I think they had a number of objectives in mind. One of them is certainly to create a victory picture that resonates as victory to their own supporters. And they did that. All the horrible footage that we saw plays well with their supporters and it's being amplified by some of their enablers like Al Jazeera Channel uh, in Qatar. I think they also had two other objectives. Uh, one objective is to try to inflame the West Bank. They see the Palestinian Authority as their key opponent and they hope that the violence will spread to the West Bank. They also had a larger objective of undermining Saudi-Israeli rapprochement that was happening. And of course they knew that the Israeli response is going to be devastating. And I believe this time it's going to be more devastating than all of the previous times. But for Hamas, this plays to their interest. They want to present themselves as victims. They're already trying to spread this. This does not absolve Israel of the need to respect the laws of war and to minimize civilian casualties. But for Hamas, the civilian casualties is part of what they hope to see because they hope to garner sympathy based on that. There has been a general sense in recent years that the Palestinian Authority, which is mostly the government in the West Bank and for which you once worked, has kind of lost its way, has lost direction, is no longer really seen as the voice of Palestine. Is there any room for it to move here? Is there a point it can attempt to make in the midst of all this? As you rightly said, the Palestinian Authority has become very irrelevant, partly due to Israeli policies, you know, lack of progress in the peace process. Netanyahu is on record saying we need to divide the Palestinians and weaken the Palestinian Authority, etc. But it's also partly a result of the Palestinian Authority's own behavior, corruption poor governance, lack of democracy, has made the public sick of the Palestinian Authority. As a result, today it is irrelevant, and even its ability to provide political and security governance in the West Bank is highly reduced. So I'm sad to say the Palestinian Authority at the moment is just a bystander. The most that we can hope is if it can exercise some security control in the West Bank and prevent an escalation there, and even that is questionable.
I mean, how much of a hindrance at this point is the figure of President Mahmoud Abbas, for whom you did once work as an advisor? He's 87 years old. He's nearly at this point, I think, 20 years into his first four-year term as president. Is there anything that you see in the way of fresh thinking coming up behind him? Look, I mean, Abbas has come to symbolize to many Palestinians everything that is wrong with the uh, Palestinian Authority. If you look at his approval ratings, they're in the single digits. Uh, if you look at the uh, opinion polling, I mean, I can't don't remember the exact number, but close to 80%, 75% want him to step down. Yet he's been holding to power. Not only has he been holding to power, he's been making sure that no one emerges as a potential leader within uh, his own party. Every time someone starts garnering some public support, he cuts them down. This is very problematic today because today he has no really no people who have credibility he can send to the street to convince the public to calm down. And this will be a bigger problem once he leaves the scene and that is inevitable at some point. We might have a mess after him. But your question, no. There are many individuals who want to have a different approach, yet they do not have the political space to emerge and to operate because of Abbas's very repressive authoritarian policies. Do you see, though, any consensus about what a productive, constructive, pragmatic way forward for Palestine is? Do people still talk about a two-state solution as a plausible aspiration? First of all, I mean, this is a question that uh, might seem irrelevant today, because today all the focus is on the ground and we don't know how it's going to go. But it is the right question, because uh, ultimately this fighting will end and the question where we go from there. I still believe personally that a two-state solution is the only solution. It is the only way that you give the Palestinian people the right to self-determination and the Jewish people the right to self-determination, each in a state of their own. Yet... The problem is that because of the failures of the uh, negotiations in the past, people have lost faith in a two-state solution. Today, the support for it among Israelis and Palestinians is uh, less than 50%. You know, I believe it's still possible on the ground, but we have to rehabilitate the idea. First of all, the idea of cooperation through intensive cooperative efforts, maybe on a smaller level economic issues, security issues, humanitarian issues, public health, etc. But also we have to remember that there are constituencies in both societies which are committed to preventing the two-state solution. On the Israeli side, we see them in the current Israeli government, and not only you know the far right there, but even the main Likud party. And on the Palestinian side as well, Hamas, clearly, part of its objective is to prevent a two-state solution and to destroy Israel. So uh, we need to take the initiative. You don't need big diplomatic initiatives right now because they will fail. You need small, concrete steps that will show both sides that cooperation can produce good results. So is it kind of a question of people on both sides, Israelis and Palestinians, who might be interested in that sort of settlement, as things stand, trying to find a way to reach out to each other around their own governments? As things stand today, that's very hard. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. I was involved in the heights of the Second Intifada. And in the worst days, I have not seen so much anger. Today, I don't think there's space for much cooperation, even though there are courageous Palestinians and Israelis who are trying to do it. But ultimately, yes, we need the people to people on the grassroots level to engage. And there are people who are doing it. And from the outside in the West, we should be supporting these people because it's essential. And these people are brave and doing it at their own risk. Yet, to my mind, important as this is, there is no alternative to government level engagement. Ultimately, peace will be done between governments. We need to start working on thinking about how do you rehabilitate 
the credibility of the Palestinian Authority through reform, through uh, bringing fresh blood? And how do we start pushing Israel towards a more moderate trajectory, unlike what it's been going through in the last few years? Gaith, thank you for joining us. That was Gaith Alamari of the Washington Institute. Do stay with us. This is the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. In the circumstances of this week, it is understandable enough if few in the Israeli government or military circles are much interested in talk of a settlement with their Palestinian neighbours. But whatever does happen next, Israelis and Palestinians will still have to live alongside each other somehow. And there are those Israelis who have long warned that militarised segregation is not a long-term solution. In December 2020, the Foreign Desk spoke to Ami Ayalon, former director of Israel's National Security Service, the Shin Bet, former commander-in-chief of the Israeli Navy, and former naval commando, who is just one of 40 recipients of Israel's highest military decoration, the Medal of Valor. I began by asking Admiral Ayalon why he believed a two-state solution is a national security imperative for Israel. Well, it's existential. It's existential for our identity and our security. The concept of a Jewish democratic state, it is existential because we we are not majority from the Jordan to the sea. Uh, Whether we are 48% or 55%, it's not very important. We are not majority. And if we are not majority, we do not have not the right and not the power to dictate the language, the culture, the traditions. So I think that if, again, if on the other side of the border there will be a Palestinian state, which is the state of the Palestinian people, parallel to the state of Israel, which is the state of the Jewish people. Now, when I say a state of the Jewish state, it means that the state belongs to the Jewish people and to all its citizens. And it will be the same on the Palestinian side. This Palestinian future state will be the state of the Palestinian people and of all its citizens. I think that it is very, very difficult for us to explain to people who are living in Australia or England or Europe. We do not quite understand what is peace. We never had peace. If I learned something in the Shin Bet, that I cannot deter a person or a group of people who has nothing to fear who has nothing to lose. This is the only explanation to the wave of violence. This is a society that came to believe that they have nothing to lose. You know, my friends in Israel tells me, okay, it's, you know, it's a Palestinian, it's a Muslim ideology. We saw it in Lebanon. I said, no, it's a human phenomenon. It's not a Muslim phenomenon. The first suicide attacker in written history, you can read it in the Bible was Samson. You know, when Samson killed thousands, tens of thousands of his enemies, it was because of humiliation. It was because he came to believe that he has nothing to lose. But doesn't that right there become part of the problem with practically implementing this idea of a two-state solution, that at some point you are going to have to find a way to reason with people on both sides, whether it's Hamas or the more hardcore settlers who up until this point have shown absolutely no inclination to be reasonable at all? You know, when Sheikh Yassin, who was the founder of the Hamas, 
When he was asked in an interview, what he's afraid of, he said there is only one thing that I'm afraid of, that the Palestinian people will come to believe that the Jews will give them a Palestinian state alongside Israel. Because if this will happen, Hamas will be destroyed. You know, Hamas, the power of Hamas comes from exactly this problem. That they came to believe that diplomacy doesn't work. You know, the narrative of what happened during the last 28 years in the Middle East, it's unbelievable. There are two contradicting narratives. If you will ask the average Israeli, he will tell you, well, all what we wanted was security. And we got instead less security, more terror intifada. So we feel betrayed. If you ask the Palestinian, he will say all what we wanted was to see the end of occupation. And all what we saw was more settlements, more settlers, more roadblocks. So they feel betrayed as well. And we do not see their narrative. They do not see our narrative. If they will have a state, the power of Hamas will be decreased. But there is no military decision in the war against terror. We shall have to live with terror. It is much more similar to the criminal act. We have to live with crime because crime is a natural result of our daily life. We have to fight against it. So, so for us, we will be able to prosper, uh, to teach our children, to create a better life. But we shall have to live with some level of violence. That was Ami Ayalon, former director of Israel's National Security Service, the Shin Bet, speaking to the Foreign Desk in December 2020. Ami Ayalon's book, Friendly Fire, How Israel Became Its Own Worst Enemy, is available and much recommended. And that is it for this special live episode of the Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for the Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk and the Foreign Desk Explainer was produced and edited by Emma Searle, David Stevens, Mariella Bevan and Callum McLean. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.